The following presentation of Walking Through the Twelve Steps and Twelve Traditions is from a previous broadcast and is a production of Take 12 Recovery Radio. Some portions of this show may have included promotions or giveaways that were time-sensitive and may no longer be applicable. To listen and download more of Walking Through the Twelve Steps and Twelve Traditions, visit our website at Take12Radio.com and click on Recovery Workshops. I've got to give it up. The views expressed on this episode of Walking Through the Twelve Steps and Twelve Traditions with Chris Schroeder do not necessarily reflect those of KHLT Recovery Broadcasting or our affiliates. KHLT is not affiliated with any particular 12-step fellowship. Now here's those two guys who investigate prior to contempt, Chris and the Monty Man. And welcome, recovery family, to another great episode of Walking Through the 12 Steps and 12 Traditions with Chris Schroeder. This week we are um, unfolding uh, the second tradition, correct? Yes, that's right. You know, Monty, we talked a little bit uh, last week about the traditions, um, just kind of in general. And, you know, one of the things that I mentioned was that uh, in the steps, step one is the problem statement, step two is the solution, and three through 12 are how to achieve that solution. Uh, I think it's the same thing with the traditions. Uh, tradition one is, is a problem statement, uh, and the problem is unity. Uh, the, the unity of the groups need to be maintained uh, so that uh, individuals will have an opportunity and, and the, the proper atmosphere and uh, for recovery, so the groups are incredibly important. That's where that's where most people end up. Uh, and then, you, if you're lucky, after you discover the fellowship, you'll discover the recovery process, and you know you'll get to a place where uh, where you're you're back in pretty good shape. So you know the first t- tradition talks about the problem of unity, and and uh, you know in, in the second tradition, in the second tradition, basically I I believe it to be. Uh, a solution statement. Mm-hmm. Tradition two, two states, for our group purpose, there is but one ultimate authority, a loving God, as he may express himself in our group conscience. Our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. So really what, what Bill is saying in that statement is, you know, pe- people are fallible. Human beings are fallible. Uh, in the steps, it basically tells us that we shouldn't rely on human power. Human power will fail us. Right. We need to we need to rely on divine power. He's saying the same thing in tradition too. Uh, the, uh, a group conscious, as it expresses itself, uh, uh, is is, uh, is is basically a manifestation of uh, of the expression of a higher power. Um, you know, the one ultimate authority, and and as that ultimate authority expresses itself in our group conscious, um, you know, in group consciences. Um, and some of them can be, you know, slow and brutally painful. You've probably <laughs> been through a couple of yourself, Bonnie. <laughs> yeah. But, but, um, but in, in a group conscience, uh, you, you know, uh, certain positions are, are put forward. 
um, you know, uh, whether to, I, you know, in the in the earlier days uh, uh, of of uh, recovery fellowship uh, attendance, you know, I experienced the. Uh, the 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 change in uh, a smoking meeting to a non-smoking right meeting. and there was some really brutal uh, group conscience mm-hmm. uh, at that time. This is about this is nineteen ninety ninety one when insurance was kicking in and, and really asking places to not allow smoking inside uh, because it made fire insurance too expensive. So you know so uh, uh, so you know I've been through some of the brutal ones uh, back in the day. But at the end of the day, it's it's rare. It's rare that the group conscience is not the best decision for the group. It may not be your position, but it's rare that it's not the best position for the group. Now there are you know there are uh, exceptions to that, but uh, 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 but more more often more often than not, uh, the group conscience is a is, is a better decider. Mm-hmm. Uh, than than if you put a leader in charge, you know, Le- leaders are uh, are kind of frowned upon in the twelve step fellowships. Uh, you know, uh, there are people that certainly want to be leaders. You know, there's not a there's not a lack of them, uh, but inherent in the traditions and inherent in many of the bylaws and the concepts, uh, there, there's basically protections against uh, the ego-driven uh, control freak kind right. of thing. And, and the, the group conscience is one of them. Right, right. I, I we I remember going through that with my home group with the no smoking thing. And it was like you said, it was brutal, man. I mean, it was, you know, it's interesting because if you offer food, they come to a business meeting. Or if you're going to change something as big as non-smoking or smoking to non-smoking, they come. And man, they came out of the woodwork. But you know what's it's interesting is you know the dust settled at some point, and of course it's been non-smoking now for years, and yeah, everything's fine. Yeah, the only places I think that are still smoking are clubhouses, which are which are usually owned by fellowship members, and so oh right, allow smoking in some of them. Right. Uh, all right, we're going to get started on page one thirty-two of the Twelve Steps and Twelve Traditions. Uh, tradition two. Where does AA get its direction? Who runs it? This too is a puzzler for every friend and newcomer. When told that our society has no president having authority to govern it, no treasurer who can compel the payment of any dues, no board of directors who can cast an erring member out, out into the outer darkness, uh, when, when indeed no AA can give another directive and enforce obedience, our friends gasp and explain, this simply can't be. There must be an angle somewhere. These practical folks then read Tradition 2 and learn that the sole authority in AA is a loving God, as he may express himself in the group conscience. They dubiously ask an experienced AA member if this really works. The member, sane to all appearances, immediately answers, yes, it definitely does. The friend mutters that this looks vague, nebulous, pretty naive to them. Then they commence to watch us with speculative eyes, pick up a fragment of AA history and soon have the solid facts. What are these facts of AA life which brought us to this apparent impractical principle? Uh, John Doe, a good AA moves, let us say, to Middletown, USA. Alone now, he reflects that he may not be able to stay sober or even alive unless he passes on to other alcoholics what was so freely given to him. 
He feels a spiritual and ethical compulsion because hundreds may be suffering within reach of his help. Then, too, he misses his home group. He needs other alcoholics as much as they need him. He visits preachers, doctors, editors, policemen, and bartenders, with the result that Middletown now has a group, and he is the founder. Being a founder, he is at first the boss. Who else could be? Very soon, though, his assumed authority to run everything begins to be shared with the first alcoholics he has helped. At this moment, the benign dictator becomes the chairman of a committee composed of his friends. These are the growing group's hierarchy of service, self-appointed, of course, because there is no other way. In a matter of months, AA booms in Middletown. The founder and his friends channel spirituality to newcomers, hire halls, make hospital arrangements, and entreat their wives to brew gallons of coffee. Being on the human side, the founder and his friends may bask a little in glory. They say to one another, perhaps it would be a good idea if we continue to keep a firm hand on AA in this town. After all, we are experienced. Besides, look at all the good we've done these drunks. They should be grateful. True <laughs> founders and their friends uh, are sometimes wiser and more humble than this, but more often at this stage they are not. Growing pains now beset the group. Panhandle is panhandle. Lonely hearts pine. Problems descend like an avalanche. Still more important, murmurs are heard in the body politic, which swell into a loud cry. Um, do these old-timers think they can run this group forever? Let's have an election. The founder and his friends are hurt and depressed. They rush from crisis to crisis and from member to member pleading, but it's no use. The revolution is on. The group conscience is about to take over. Now comes the election. If the founder and his friends have served well, they may, to their surprise, be reinstated for a time. If, however, they have heavily resisted the rising tide of democracy, they may be summarily beached. In either case, the group now has the so-called rotating committee, very sharply limited in its authority. In no sense whatever can its members govern or direct the group. They are servants. Theirs is the sometimes thankless privilege of doing the group's chores. Headed by the chairman, they look after public relations and arrange meetings. Their treasurer, strictly accountable, takes money from the hat that is passed, banks it, pays the rent and other bills, and makes a regular report at business meetings. The secretary sees that literature is on the table, looks after the phone answering service, answers the mail, and sends out notices of meetings. Such are the simple services that enable the group to function. The committee gives no spiritual advice, judges no one's conduct, issues no orders. Every one of them may be promptly eliminated at the next election if they try this, and so they make the belated discovery that they are really servants, not senators. These are the universal experiences. Thus, throughout AA, does the group conscience decree the terms upon which its leaders shall serve. You know, it's, you know an interesting, interesting story there. You know, it talks about uh, Monty. It talks about the person who uh, who moves to a town that does not have AA. Mm-hmm. Basically, goes around and, and twelve steps at hospitals and sanitariums and traffic courts, and and, and finally ends up with a group of guys. And uh, he feels very, very, uh, 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 you know, very patristic to, about the, these these people. He, he feels like, uh, you know, he has uh, he's uh, the guy who's really responsible for their sobriety, and you know, he's put meetings together because he he's got more experience. And and what can happen is, you know, even unconsciously, what can happen is. You can become very controlling, and you can become uh, the type of person who uh, is is arranging and directing a ton of minutia 
uh, that doesn't really necessarily have to be uh, arranged and directed. Right. And and you know the the good news the good news about this particular tradition is uh, I think. I think if uh, if a, if AA allowed for a higher class of alcoholic, of a higher class of membership, a leader membership, and, you know, uh, uh, and there's members and there's leaders of those members. If it allowed something like that, I think it would have impacted and adversely hurt uh, uh, hurt AA as a whole. I, I truly yeah, I do too. <clears throat> Let me let me ask you. Let me let me before you go on. Let me ask you this. Um, in the statement for our group purpose, there is but one ultimate authority, and and we say, well, who is that? And that that's a loving God, as He may express Himself in our group conscience. Okay. The statement, a loving God, is one thing, but as He may express Himself in our group conscience, can be very controversial. Uh, there's two points I want to make here. The, my experience is that many times this is um, this 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 whole this tradition, the wording of what we just read, uh, the the quote there, um, is almost kind of like a, um, it, it, it's an, like an excuse to to blow off whatever concerns other people may have. Well, you know, we let God run this thing, so it's no big deal. Um, you know, we don't make the decision. God makes the decision. And they don't even even believe in God. You know, you, you know what I mean? Uh, you know, I do. I do, Monty. And, and one of the things that I, I do want to mention is, uh, during a group conscience, really the best way to handle a group conscience is to have group members that are informed and experienced. And, you know, it, 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 like if you pull a group conscience meeting, say in a beginner's meeting, where 80% of the people have less than 90 days, who knows what you're going to get at the end of that? <laughs> Who knows if the lo- if the loving God really has expressed Himself uh, in that group conscience? For I believe for a group conscience to be uh, uh, to be inspired, they need to be informed and experienced. Does that make any sense? Yes, it does. And when I when I say informed, uh, I mean they need to understand the traditions. They need to understand the steps. They need to understand the three sides of the triangle, unity, recovery, service. And to be experienced, I believe they should have had some type of a spiritual awakening, because if if they haven't, then they're still very, very sick from alcoholism, uh, bodily, mentally, and spiritually. They could be very, very sick still if they haven't gone through the steps. And, and you know, with people who are still, to some degree, insane, uh, it's probably not a good idea to... Uh, um, uh, to have a majority of those people voting in the group conscience, because again, you're you're not gonna you're not gonna be open to the sunlight of the spirit, which is uh, which is how God expresses uh, Himself in our group conscience. You know, by uh, by inspiration and intuition for people who are in recovery. I, I think that uh, you know. I think that each group uh, owes it to themselves to. To do uh, to do inventory, to do group inventory, uh, to periodically check. You know what? What? How healthy? How healthy are the members? You know where are the members in their recovery process? Mm-hmm. You know, have have they even gone through this test? Because you're you're going to get you're going to get a different voting body uh, when you have informed and experienced people than when you don't. You know, so so it is kind of uh, it is kind of uh, up to 
up to us as uh, as group members of whatever Fellowship Fellowship we might belong uh, to promote informed and experienced group members. Yeah, yeah. the 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 other thing I w- I wanted to mention was um, uh, well, th- this is one of the reasons. Unfortunately, the only measuring stick we really have to go by is, is the suggested sober time that we assign to each one of those service positions. I mean, we're assuming that that folks have gone through the steps and, you know, treasurer is like two years or three years or whatever, and that he's had a spiritual awakening and he can be trusted with money. But that's not always the case, uh, especially if you have a new group that is formed. Um, but, I, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, it is so... It amazes me that it works. That's all I got to say. Because I've seen it work more times than I've seen it not work. Um, but I've seen it when I've seen it not work. It's been ugly, you know. Yeah, and, and again, again, every single problem and every single twelve-step fellowship can be solved by one thing. You know, a, a, effective and experienced sponsorship. Yeah, that's uh, right. You know, uh, it has to really, it has to really start there, and uh, and you know, it, ha- it it has to be about members uh, really understanding what the heck they're in and what they're voting for. Um, uh, again, and I'll I'll say this about time limits: like a treasurer needs two years, and a chairperson needs a year, and and you need a year to get involved in a relationship. Well, it, when somebody starts spouting those years, what, what they're what they're telling you is they haven't learned anything since rehab, <laughs> because because those are not AA uh, uh, suggestions. They're not. Uh, they should not be twelve step fellowship suggestions. Usually, they're they're treatment center suggestions, and because because a lot of times treatment is so ineffective, they they really try to hand you a bunch of tricks, a, a kit bag of yeah. elite yeah. Uh, that, that hopefully will improve your odds of staying sober. Like, like don't get in a relationship, you know, no major changes. Uh, uh, don't become a, a treasurer for two. You know, all those, all those things just uh, uh, alert, should be alerting you that there are inexperienced and uninformed uh, members uh, in that particular group. If they're saying things like that, they don't understand the recovery process. Because it's, it's about quality. It's never about quantity. You, you know, right, exactly. About, it's never about... I, I, I've known people, Monty, who have like 25 years, and they can't find a sponsor because they can't find somebody with more than 25 years who, who, who you know, has their act together. Now, that's kind of silly, you know? Yeah. Uh, most, of the pe- most of the people that I'm, I'm close to will will not consider that. I know people with a lot of time who have sponsors with much less time. But but those particular sponsors are uh, are, are really on the beam. They're really on the ball. Uh, they've had a vital spiritual experience from really serious step work. And and they're and they're on fire. You know, the the lights are on and they're on fire. And that's really what you want. You want to you want to go toward that hour you know, where you want to go to the person who's who God is speaking through. And, and it's usually the person who's just done a whole bunch of step work, and uh, and again, uh, I I love uh, I love interacting with people like that. Yeah. Uh, right. Right after right after they've gotten done uh, a whole bunch of a uh, whole bunch of step work. This brings us to the question: Does AA have real leadership? Most emphatically, the answer is yes. 
Notwithstanding the apparent lack of it, let's turn again to the disposed founder and his friends. What becomes of them? As their grief and anxiety wear away, a subtle change begins. Ultimately, they divide into two classes known in AA slang as elder statesman and bleeding deacon. <laughs> the elder statesman is the one who sees the wisdom of the group's decision, who holds no resentment over his reduced status, whose judgment, fortified by considerable experience, is sound, and who is willing to sit quietly on the sidelines, patiently awaiting developments. The bleeding deacon is, is one who is just as surely convinced that the group cannot get along without him, who constantly connives for re-election to office, and who continues to be consumed with self-pity. A few hammered so badly that drained of all AA spirit and principle, they get drunk. At times, the AA landscape seems to be littered with bleeding forms. Nearly every old time in our society has gone through this process in some degree. Happily, most of them survive and live to become elder statesmen. They become the real and permanent leadership of AA. Theirs is the quiet opinion, the sure knowledge and humble example that resolves a crisis. When sorely perplexed, the group inevitably turns to them for advice. They become the voice of the group conscience. In fact, they are the true voice of Alcoholics Anonymous. They do not drive by mandate. They lead by example. This is the experience which has led us to the conclusion that our group conscience, well advised by its elders, will be in the long run wiser than any single leader. So that, that, that kind of goes to my point, Monty, where informed and experienced mm-hmm. members, uh, make make the best decisions. And uh, if you will... Um, God's conscience, uh, as it manifests in in these uh, these individuals, is uh, is more likely to be inspired than not. Yeah, I agree with that because because uh, when when you have an elder statesman, usually you have people that have uh, some form of humility. They they're not uh, they're not involved in volunteerism. They're involved in 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 uh, in servanthood, so to speak. Um, they're not filling jobs just because they need to be filled. They're they're uh, they're working behind the scenes. They're quiet. They yeah they've done done all that and and God works through those people because they're available to to, to Him. You know I, I think I the, I think every group I, I'm relatively sure that every group's got a couple of people in their in their meetings that when they walk into the room I know we do. There's something happens. Uh, one gentleman I'm thinking of when he walks into the room. There's a calm that happens. It's it's yeah. all, it, it's 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 like he, without him, without himself demanding it, his presence demands respect. Does that make any sense? You know, uh, you know, absolutely, Monty. I was up. Uh, I was up at a uh, at a convention um, uh, up in uh, British Columbia, up in the Yukon, uh, this last weekend. And there are there are a lot of elders in some of these areas, and. Uh, I met a man named Cecil, and this is a guy with, oh, he's, he's probably clean and sober well over 40 years, and he's part of uh, the First Nation. First Nation is the, the, the politically correct way to, uh, to, to refer to the indigenous uh, uh, tribes. Okay. And, and he, he was, you know, he was someone who, pres- who pr- presided in a spiritual manner over a particular rainforest up up in up in this area, uh-huh. and when he walked up to shake my hand, Monty, I recognized his power. Wow. Okay, I recognized the extent of his spiritual power, and and this this will happen 
This will happen with uh, really inspired um, people, really, really, you know, spiritual masters of one form or another. And, and this in, individual is one of those people who's just unshakable. Uh, you know, his his particular uh, uh, people have gone through, you know, just less than 100, 200, 300 years, just decimation. Mm. And, you know, to come out the other side, uh, you know, a spiritual person with no harm in you, yeah, is uh, it is absolutely amazing to me, and and you you know every once in a while you'll have someone like that quite possibly in your group, you know, uh, uh, I've I've seen it happen that it's just people who are on a, a spiritual level that, that that is you know kind of unshakable, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, and and they they do become uh, the elder states, and they they do they do become the people that we we seek advice from. And that's as it should be. You know what I mean? Sure. Definitely as it should be. Uh, so, uh, let's see. When AA was only three years old, an event occurred demonstrating this principle. One of the first members of AA, entirely contrary to his own desires, was obliged to conform to group opinion. Here is the story in his words. One day I was doing a 12-step job at a hospital in New York. The proprietor, Charlie, summoned me to his office. Bill, he said, I think it's a shame that you are financially so hard up. All around you, these drunks are getting well and making money. But you've given this work full, you've been giving this work full time, and you're broke. It isn't fair. Charlie finished in his desk and came up with an old old financial statement. And to me, he continued, this shows the kind of money the hospital used to make back in the 20s. Thousands of dollars a month. It should be doing just as well now, and it would if only you'd help me. So why don't you move your work in here? I'll give you an office, a decent drawing account, and a very healthy slice of the profits. Three years ago, when when my head doctor, uh, Silkworth, began to tell me the idea of helping drunks by spirituality, I thought it was a crackpot stuff, but I've changed my mind. So Someday this bunch of ex-drunks of yours will fill Madison Square Garden, and I don't see why you should starve meanwhile. What I propose is perfectly ethical. You can become a lay therapist and more successful than anybody in the business. I was bowled over. There were twinges of conscience until I saw how really ethical Charlie's proposal was. This is Charlie Towns from Towns Hospital. Mm -hmm. There was nothing wrong, whatever, with becoming a lay therapist. I thought of Lois coming home exhausted from the department store each day, only to cook supper for a household of drunks who weren't paying board. I thought of a large sum of money still owing my Wall Street creditors, I thought of a few of my alcoholic friends who were making uh, uh, as much money as ever. Why shouldn't I do as well as they? Although I asked Charlie for a little time to consider it, my own mind was about made up. Racing back to Brooklyn on the subway, I had a seeming flash of divine guidance. It was only a single sentence, but most convincing. In fact, it came right out of the Bible. A voice kept saying to me, the laborer is worthy of his hire. Arriving home, I found Lois cooking as usual while three drunks looked hungry on from the kitchen door. I drew her aside and told her the glorious news. She looked interested, but not as ex- excited as I thought she should be. <laughs> it, it was meeting night, although none of the alcoholics we boarded seemed to get sober. Some others had. With their wives, they crowded into our downstairs parlor. At once, I burst into the story of my opportunity. Never I shall I forget their impassive faces and the steady gaze they focused upon me. With waning enthusiasm, my tail trailed off uh, to the end. There was a long silence. 
Almost timidly, one of my friends began to speak. We know how hard up you are, Bill. It bothers us a lot. We've often wondered what we might do about it, but I think I speak for everyone here when I say that what you now propose bothers us an awful lot more. The speaker's voice grew more confident. Don't you realize, he went on, that you can never become a professional. As generous as Charlie has been to us, don't you see that we can't tie this thing up with his hospital or any other? You tell us that Charlie's proposal is ethical. Sure, it's ethical, but what we've, uh, what we've got won't run on ethics only. It has to be better. Sure, Charlie's idea is good, but it isn't good enough. This is a matter of life and death, Bill, and nothing but the very best will do. Challengingly, my friends looked at me as their spokesman continued, Bill, haven't you often said right here in this meeting that sometimes the good is the enemy of the best? Well, this is a plain case of it. You can't do this thing to us. So spoke the group conscience. The group was right, and I was wrong. The voice on the subway was not the voice of God. Here was the true voice welling up out of my friends. I listened, and thank God I obeyed. And, and you know what? He paid the price for that. Yeah. He paid such a price for that. Bill, Bill was just starting to get a little bit of money in his pocket, you know, when he was uh, when he was in his late sixties, early seventies, from book sales, you know, up until that point, uh, I mean, he lived very, very modestly. I, th- I think a house, the stepping stones, was was either given to him or sold to him way below value, you know, so that he would have a, a place to stay. Because uh, during uh, during the thir- the thirties and and part of the forties, uh, Bill lived in like thirty six different places. He'd go house to house. They, they didn't have a home. And, uh, you know, they would stay with friends, stay with this person a week, stay with that person a month. It was, it was rough. And for him to make a decision to, uh, to remain poor, basically, you know, uh, uh, taking a vow of poverty uh, to do this work was, was really, really something. Mm. You know? um, uh, I'm, so glad that, I'm so glad that he did, because to, prof- to professionalize this, listen, I know about... I know about professionalizing, uh, professionalizing uh, the spiritual message. It can be done. There, there are some places that do a good job of it, Monty, but there are more places that don't. You, you know what I mean? So, so Bill Wilson starting a hospital probably would have would have never had the impact <coughs> of them starting me. a fellowship. Well, let, let me let me ask you this because this is something I've always wondered about. Um, were they were were they concerned that he was going to tie AA up in this, or were they concerned that just him doing that on his own, even if he didn't tie AA up in it, would be a bad deal? You know my my uh, you know my belief about what might have been going through their heads when that when that man made that statement to Bill was was this that, that you know they were being asked to to uh, help other alcoholics for fun and for free and for permanent sobriety okay. <laughs> you know those were the those were the, the three things and if bill all of a sudden was going to do what he did with most of them you know taking them through the steps and helping them get sober if all of a sudden he was going to charge for it right they probably they probably got scared you know mo- most alcoholics don't have any money when yeah. it's time to get sober yeah you know what I mean, and and I don't think insurance existed in the in the thirties or forties like it does today. Um, it certainly wasn't covering alcoholism. Mm-hmm. So so you know for for him to professionalize it 
probably would have moved it away from practically everybody in that room's ability to get if you know you know if Bill was a professional and not not the, the lay person who uh, who helped them you know what I mean so it, you know it's it's always been a concern uh, it's always been a concern money property and prestige have always been uh, a concern to Bill Wilson and to the fellowship as a, as a whole because of the dangers inherent in property uh, and prestige Uh and I, and I think from from what I've witnessed is there are people that are that is, that coming out of this tradition and this very uh, this this thing that you just read. There was a lot of people in Alcoholics Anonymous that whenever somebody you know comes in and says you know uh, maybe they've been there for a year and they says you know I think I'm going to be an alcohol and drug counselor. Well, first of all, everybody starts laughing. Because uh, <laughs> we've seen a lot of people say that when they were new, and then you know nothing could be further from the truth that that took place. But um, but I have seen people that actually have done that and have done very well in that profession. But sure. it, it it still bothers some folks. They're thinking, well, you can't do that. But you know, I, I don't know. I mean, there are people that can keep it completely separate and do a, a very good job of it. There, there is, and listen. I've known a million therapists in my days, especially when I was, you know, doing the afflicted and affected show. And here, here's what I think makes the best possible alcoholism or drug addiction uh, counselor: someone with the, with uh, the experience of overcoming their own addiction or alcoholism, someone that has been through the twelve steps, someone who understands the two different hats you need to wear when you're working with clients in a treatment center and AAs at home yeah. uh, or NAs at home, you, you need to, you need to be very, very clear on the two hats you need to wear. And you need to know that you need to wear two hats. Uh, one of the, one of the saddest things that I've seen uh, over the last 20 years, Monty, is uh, the advent of uh, the really strict licensure for, uh, for the counselors, you know, there's there's a uh, there's positive to be said about it. At least you're getting educated people who are becoming alcoholism counselors. But but on the other hand, you know, back before 1992 uh, or 95, you know, when uh, when managed care, we went from 100,000 beds for alcoholism and addiction to 10,000 overnight with uh, with managed care. It decimated. Uh, uh, the ability to, to have uh, addiction or alcoholism uh, treatment reimbursed, um, but uh, but uh, anyway, what 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 was happening back in the eighties and, and the very early nineties was most of the counselors were retired AA members. They were AA members who'd been around for twenty or thirty years, who for their retirement job decided to go in and do counseling. You know, without with alcoholics. Listen, it's always been like the lowest paid job in the world. Uh, mm-hmm. Alcoholism counseling. It's you know, I, I think I think the reimbursement through Medicaid for a one hour counseling session is eight dollars. Oh gee. <laughs> so, uh, you know, for for the hour. So I mean, it's always been incredibly, uh, incredibly underfunded. Uh, so it was handled by retired people. Well, well nowadays the people that are pushing out those. Uh, those old-time AAs who don't have their MSW are these MSWs who are coming out of college that, that haven't, haven't even, you know, they, they understand THIQ. They understand the, 
uh, CBT. They, they they understand a whole lot of different things, right? But none of them, none of them are effective on alcohol. None, none, nothing that they've been taught is effective on alcoholism, and they don't even know it. And so they they push these these wizened old fellowship members aside while they take on uh, the caseload for the alcoholism uh, or the or the drug addicted uh, clients, and and the outcomes go down. You know, yeah. <laughs> Uh, people have less of a chance of getting sober than they did with the people who would at least encourage them to go to AA or NA or something. You know, a lot, a lot of the, a lot of those old counselors, you know, developed an alliance with their clients and, and made sure that they joined up with a, a recovery fellowship when they left. And that's really where the recovery comes from. You know, treatment is about discovery. Twelve, the 12 steps are about recovery. And, you know, you need to know that. And there are, there are actually, you know, professionals uh, who are treating you for alcoholism or drug addiction who don't understand that very, very simple truth. Uh, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. I, I was uh, really fortunate to have uh, in the outpatient program that I went to. Um, he was a rookie at the treatment facility. He ended up being the, the uh, head uh, director years later. And we're still close friends today. But he was one of us. And... Uh, but you never saw him in a local meeting. He went to meetings, but it was out of the area. Right. Uh, and, and he did that. He, he told me, he says, integrity demands I do that, you know. And I always always respected him for that, and that, that was a good deal. Um, um, there, there's, a high, there's a high relapse rate uh, among counselors. Well, well, you know, maybe not, a, you know, maybe about the same as normal people, but, but uh, five out of six alcoholism counselors or drug drug addiction counselors who uh, were in recovery before they became uh, a counselor, uh, four out of five of them relapsed. And, uh, you know, that, that sounds probably like a high statistic. It's kind of not, you know, when you consider the general population. Mm-hmm. That's, about, that's about right for people, you know, in a 20-year time span. Mm-hmm. They're going to, you know, four out of five of them are going to relapse. Uh, but... Um, I believe I believe the relapse happens because of the inability to continue to wear the two hats. In other words, this is this is what this is what happens. Okay, you're let's say you're an AA member. You're going to AA like crazy, and I got AA sponsor. You love it. You're sober ten years, and you decide you know to, to change your life and become an alcoholism counselor. You, you go to school. You're still going to AA meetings. You finally you finally get your uh, your sheepskin and and. Uh, and you go and you set up shop, either you know with a uh, with an outpatient treatment or wherever, and you start to see clients, and you start to work four or five hours a day, if it, or a night if you're doing it at night, if you know if you get a full time job, then you're doing it eight or nine hours during the day, and you're not quite as enthusiastic about going to the meeting because you've been talking to alcoholics for nine hours, <laughs> and, and you got to go and you got to uh, meet up with a sponsee at the you know, at the coffee shop and go over to some step work, they go to a meeting with them, and then maybe go out to the diner. I mean, that's, that's, that's like, uh, you know, that's like 18 hours straight of recovery. Right. You get tired of doing that. So what, what, what do you drop? Well, you need to, you need to make the money, so you're not going to drop your job. You end up dropping AA. And, and for some crazy reason, you think that your work as a paid therapist means anything at all as far as your intensive work with others that that, 
that is meant to ensure your immunity from, from drinking. And it's a different hat. It's a different spiritual experience when you're getting paid for it. It will not help you stay sober if you're getting paid for it. And that's one of the things that this guy recognized when Bill was going to run off and be a professional. Mm-hmm. You know, if you are a counselor, you, you still have to go to meetings and sponsor people for fun and for free. You can't, you can't, you can't be so professional that you're not going to do it unless you get money. That you'll be one of the four out of five people that relapse if you do that. Mm-hmm. So it's a tough life. I, I think it's a tough life. I think alcoholics or drug addicts make the best counselors because they they come from a place of experience. And I'll I'll share this with you. Early early '89, I'm I'm in uh, I'm in treatment, and uh, I have a counselor named Charlie old AA member, okay? And then there's another counselor in there that does group, uh, and uh, and this, this woman is an adult child of an alcoholic, and she decided to become an alcoholism counselor. Now, Charlie could look me in the eye and tell me, you know, I'm, I'm full of horse pucky. He would know. He, he, he could look through you. He knew what your motives were. He knew when you were lying. He knew, he knew when you were being honest because he understood the alcoholic. This adult child of an alcoholic who was a counselor would, would do stuff like come up to me when I'm raging. I'm in group. I'm raging. And she would go, Chris, 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 hold on, hold on, hold on. Let's try something. Tell me if you're happy, mad, sad, or glad. Let's try to figure out how you feel. And I'm like, I'm like, first of all, none of those apply. Uh, I feel homicidal, and it's and the homicide is gonna uh, gonna involve you, <laughs> stopping me, and for making me feel stupid asking me these questions. Yeah, you know, it, it, it was just so off the wall. It was so off the wall. Happy, sad, man, or glad. Money, I wouldn't have known. It was like it, it's like every emotion known to man was put in a blender and turned on ten. <laughs> That's what I was like when I was raging in rehab. Yeah. So, so the who who did I relate to? Who did I develop the therapeutic alliance with, Monty? Was it was it the the crusty old AA guy who knew me, or was it some woman who was you know reciting crap out of some textbook? Yeah, it, it was one of the experience. The one had been there. You bet. Was the guy absolutely? Yeah, absolutely. And, and <laughs> unfortunately, those type of uh, of counselors are becoming fewer and farther between. They're dying off or getting pushed out. And you know, it's it's a real, 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 real shame. Uh, you know, we're we're not getting our best and brightest in the field anymore. Right. Yeah. That 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 is that is a shame. And there's there's this stuff going on with. Uh, with the law and so forth, uh, saying that you, you know you can't you, you can't require somebody to go to an AA meeting uh, if you're a government agency because it's a religious program. Um, you know what I'm saying? Like that, Monty. Lawsuits like that have done so much damage. I know so much damage. You know, one idiot who 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 is an atheist, you know, who wants to do a lawsuit. Probably, probably, you know, condemned hundreds of thousands of people to death because of that lawsuit. Mm-hmm. You know, because mm-hmm. now, now it's not available in the institutions. Now it's not available as a resource, uh, you know, an official resource. 
And that is incredibly sad. Listen, listen, AA and NA are not for everybody. But, you know, I, I even support groups like Smart Recovery, you know, you know which, which is, which is uh, more, more, you know, I think it works better for heavy drinkers. I, I don't right, think alcoholics right. get sober in it, but I'm, I'm fine with smart recovery. Listen, if you do not want, if, if you would rather shoot yourself than go to an AA meeting and hear about God, Please go to Smart Recovery. Sure, you bet. Please go to Smart Recovery. You know, and, and try that out. But the thing that has worked the best for the most is is AA and and the other major twelve uh, step fellowships. Yeah. They they have group membership, you know, in the millions, and it's really hard to discount that fact. You know, you can't really tell me it doesn't work when there are recoveries in the millions. So, uh, so anyway, that's kind of yeah. how I feel. Yeah. All right. Well, next week we will be going on to Tradition 3. The only requirement for AA membership is a desire to stop drinking. Uh, that has proven to be controversial as well. Uh, oh, and we're, we're going <laughs> to keep it controversial, aren't we? <laughs> yeah. uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. So uh, you don't want to you don't want to miss next week. The only requirement for membership AA membership is desire. To stop drinking, and uh, I got some. I've got some good questions for you already lined up for that one, uh, Chris. <laughs> okay, I'm looking forward to those questions, Mike. All right, uh, Chris, stay on the line, folks. Remember, our email address is take twelve radio at comcast dot net. Our main website take twelve radio dot com. If you're listening on your smartphone, and until our next broadcast, this is the Monty Man, Chris Schroeder, wishing serenity for you. This has been a broadcast of KHLT Recovery Broadcasting.